Have you ever been devastated by someone calling your motives into question? Perhaps even suggesting something devious or evil was behind what you did. You know, most of us, I'm sure, have had our motives called into question. It's, it's very common for some to assume that there is an underlying self-serving motive behind all that we do. And that's hard to take. But to be accused of doing evil when you're obviously doing something good can kill the desire to do anything for anyone. Or worse, to start living up to the evil expectations that others seem to have for you. Obviously, we can't let that happen. And seeing how Jesus handles such accusations can give us the resolve to keep doing what we know to be right, even if no one judges our motives or actions correctly. After all, Jesus' motives were absolutely pure, and his actions perfectly executed. If he could be misread and falsely accused, surely we should expect nothing less. We're studying in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, ready for verses 14 through 16. And he was casting out a demon, and it was dumb. And it came about that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitude marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now Luke gives no indication when this took place. He simply says that Jesus was casting out a demon, a dumb demon. Now when he says this was a dumb demon, he wasn't saying it was stupid. He's telling us this particular demon made a man unable to speak. And when Jesus commanded the demon to leave, the man could speak. An obvious miracle had taken place. The multitudes marveled. They were amazed at what he had done. But not everyone was amazed. Some were annoyed. Some didn't want Jesus to impress anyone. And Matthew tells us they were, of course, the Pharisees. They were jealous of his success. And they certainly did not want the multitudes marveling at him. But he had cast out a demon. And the results were obvious. They knew they couldn't deny what he had done. So they tried to cast suspicion on how he had done it. He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Now, if you're reading this in the King James Version or the NIV, you may have noticed that Beelzebub is reported to be the source of Christ's power. And we're more familiar with the name Beelzebub. It's very similar to the Baalzebub we find mentioned in 2 Kings. He was the god of Ekron that King Ahaziah consulted about his recovery from a fall through a lattice in his bathroom. Appropriately, 
Beelzebub was Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. <laughs> I think that's funny. Beelzebul <laughs> means Lord of Habitation, Lord of Dwelling. The Latin manuscripts have Beelzebub here, but the Greek manuscripts have Beelzebul. I think it's more likely that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with the Lord of Habitation, one they considered to be the ruler of the house of demons than the Lord of the outhouse. But either way, they would have been attributing a miracle to demonic forces. Now, that's not to say that we should automatically assume supernatural activity to be of God. You know, Paul made it very clear that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So we should not jump to conclusions when witnessing something we cannot explain. But in this instance, it was obvious that this man was under the control of demons and Jesus set, them, set him free from them. To accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil was therefore ludicrous. Apparently, some recognized that fact and didn't go quite so far. They just demanded that Jesus prove what he had done was from heaven. Now, what more he could have done to convince them, I have no idea. And quite frankly, I doubt that he could have done anything to convince them. They did not want to acknowledge what was obvious. They refused to believe that God was working through him. After all, he was not one of them, and they knew that they had a corner on the things of God. Surely, we would never discount what God is doing simply because he's using someone we don't like or someone with whom we differ. Be that as it may, let's see how Jesus responded to their accusation, verses 17 through 19. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. Well, apparently the Pharisees had simply been mumbling to themselves. They hadn't really gone public with their accusations against Jesus. But he knew what they were saying among themselves. He knew their thoughts. And he answered their accusations before they had a chance to voice them publicly. I think that may be significant. You know, once their accusations would have been made public, to respond to them would have simply caused an argument. But by preempting their accusations, without putting them on the defensive, by actually accusing them of anything, he effectively nipped their thoughts in the bud. Now, I realize he is the Son of God, and can do things we cannot do. But I don't think it would have been necessary for him to have divine insight into their thoughts to know what they were thinking. And the miracle ear 
that allows us to eavesdrop on conversations hadn't yet been invented. He knew them well enough to know what they were thinking. And he responded to their thoughts before they even had time to let them crystallize. I'm sure there are times when we could effectively diffuse a situation by doing the same thing, by acting preemptively, without accusing anyone of anything, and putting them on the defensive. Anyway, to address their thoughts, Jesus simply quoted Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, yeah, Jesus said it first. Uh, that was made clear some years ago by someone with a black marker at uh, Lincoln Memorial Garden. A bench had been engraved with the words, A house divided against itself shall not stand, and was attributed to A. Lincoln. Someone had crossed out A. Lincoln and written, Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew 12, 25. <laughs> but you know what Lincoln quoted in his famous house divided speech was obviously very applicable to the Civil War. But when Jesus first said it, he was thinking about spiritual warfare. A kingdom divided cannot stand. Even Satan knows that. And to think he would be fighting against advances in his own kingdom by enabling Jesus to cast demons out of someone made no sense whatsoever. And they knew it. They just didn't want to admit the obvious. So they had to come up with something. Well, Jesus effectively shot down their lame accusation and then went on to silence them with another question they couldn't answer. He said, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Apparently Jesus wasn't the only one casting out demons. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that Jews, using incantations they said were handed down from King Solomon, were also driving out demons, or at least they thought they were. Without going into the possibility of them actually doing such, Jesus asked a logical question. By whom do your sons cast them out? To suggest that he was doing so by the power of Beelzebul certainly left open the possibility that they were doing the same. And they obviously wouldn't want to admit that. By condemning him, they were, in effect, condemning themselves. But again, that's not all that unusual. How often do we bring accusation against someone only to judge ourselves by the accusation we bring? You know, uh, we point a finger at someone only to point three back at ourselves. That's why we must make very certain that we've taken the log out of our own eye before we attempt to take the speck out of our brothers. Well, Jesus had gotten the upper hand here. But he didn't stop. He took advantage of their stunned silence and continued teaching them. Again, let's read on. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. 
But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. The only logical explanation of what Jesus had done was that God was at work through him. And don't you love the way he said it? If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He said the finger of God, not the power of God. As if casting out demons was a hard thing for him to do. All it took was a finger. Demons could be flicked away by the finger of God. That's not to say, however, that Satan is weak. Satan is a strong man who guards his possessions well. He is fully armed and invincible to those who are weaker than he. And he's obviously stronger than we are. But when someone stronger than him comes and attacks him and overpowers him, his armor is stripped off and his plunder is distributed. Jesus is that stronger man. Jesus is much stronger than Satan with his little finger. He can disarm him and set free his captives. And Jesus had ably demonstrated that power by casting out the demon. It was time for those who witnessed what he had done to decide whether to line up behind him or the one he had defeated. And a choice had to be made. No one can live in a spiritual Switzerland. There's no neutral territory in spiritual warfare. Those who are not with Jesus are against him. And those who will not gather to him like sheep flocking to a shepherd will find themselves scattered and vulnerable to Satan's attacks. For as Peter tells us, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he picks off those who are wandering alone. That means it's not enough to be set free from Satan's power. We have to be filled with the power of God. Verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Jesus said an unclean spirit, when it passes out of a man, passes through waterless places seeking rest. But he doesn't tell us what's meant by those waterless or arid places. 
It was commonly held that demons inhabited the deserts. And that's why some thought John the Baptist had a demon. But it could be a reference to some kind of spiritual realm devoid of all life. We really don't know. What we do know is that Jesus said it's not enough to be rid of an evil spirit. Something has to take its place or it'll come back with some of its friends. And the state of the formerly demon-possessed man will be worse than it was when he was only inhabited by one demon. There's a real warning here. Even for those who have not actually been possessed by a demon, it's not enough to get sin out of our life. It's not enough to banish evil thoughts, overcome bad habits, or clean up our act. In other words, we cannot save ourselves. Getting rid of something evil won't solve the problem. We have to replace the evil with something good. Now, Paul taught this on a practical level. When he said after laying aside falsehood, we would have to start speaking the truth. When we stop stealing, we have to start laboring so we can have things to share with others. Not only must we keep unwholesome words from coming out of our mouth, we must begin edifying others by what we say. And not only must we put away wrath and anger and clamor and slander, we must be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven us. In other words... It's not enough to be rid of evil spirits. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of self-help programs out there. And there are a lot of religions that seek to uphold a high moral standard. But they all fall short of providing lasting, eternal change. They may sweep the house they can't fill it with the Spirit of God. And neither could the Pharisees. There's only one answer to the problem of sin. And there's only one adequate response to Jesus. And it came about, while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. An emotional response to Jesus is not enough. A woman in the crowd was overcome by the thoughts of of how blessed it must have been to be the mother of Jesus. And indeed, Mary was blessed. Elizabeth had it right when she said to Mary, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
But the real blessing doesn't come from a physical relationship with Jesus. It comes from a relationship of obedience to Him. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Now, He didn't do miracles to amaze the multitudes. He demonstrated His power so they would entrust themselves to Him. He wanted them to listen to what He had to say and obey it. Only then could they be blessed for all eternity. And the same is true for today. It's not enough to marvel at what Jesus did. It's not enough to acknowledge the blessing He has brought to others. And obviously, we cannot dismiss Him as an agent of evil. We must hear the Word of God and observe it. And that means full surrender to His Lordship. The only way to win in spiritual warfare is to surrender to the strong man who defeated the devil and then let him fill you with his Holy Spirit. If you're willing to surrender to him, he invites you and I invite you to come and do so publicly as we stand and sing.